Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Living with Steam. This unique podcast features the authentic sounds of trains and railroad operations in Buffalo and Western New York. The recordings you are about to hear were captured in the field by John Prophet from 1948 to 1955. I'm Aaron Heverin. In this episode, we'll return to New York Central's Tower 49A on a warm autumn evening in October 1951. We'll also hear a bit more about the gentleman who was responsible for giving John Prophet the access he needed to Tower 49A to make these spectacular recordings, John's best friend, Sam Harrington. It was getting later in the evening. John and Sam Harrington had each polished off a bagged lunch. Sam's shift wasn't ending until 11 p.m., and John was going to hang out with Sam until the end of the night. A little after 8 p.m., Sam received a call from Tower 49, which was located right in the shadow of Buffalo Central Terminal, that New York Central's train number 5 had left the depot and was on its way. As soon as John heard that announcement, he opened a window of the tower and held his hand out, gripping the wire recorder's microphone. In what seemed like a matter of seconds, New York Central Engine 5322, a J-1 Hudson, made its way out of the darkness as it started bearing down on Tower 49A, pulling train number 5. Number 5 was a daily that ran between Buffalo and Chicago, with major stops in Cleveland and Toledo, Ohio, and Elkhart, Indiana. Of course, the train would stop at smaller stations along the way, but Chicago was its main destination, and it wouldn't arrive at Chicago's LaSalle Street Station until after 7 o'clock the following morning. Train number 5 was listed in New York Central's timetables simply as Number 5 Daily. Regardless of the name, since this was a Buffalo to Chicago train, it offered both coach and sleeping car service. It was quite a long train and offered above-board accommodations for anyone making the long journey. If you so desired, you could sit in the coach seats, then make your way down to the lounge cars for a drink, to read, or even enjoy a game of cards. If you were hungry, you could head to the dining car for a meal. The other option was to choose one of the many roomette or double bedroom cars that gave you the luxury of relaxing in your own private room, then turning in for the evening as the train sped west to Chicago throughout the night.
Almost as soon as train 5 clears the board, a Pennsylvania train, number 571, shows up at Tower 49A. The Buffalo Day Express, which was a daily Buffalo to Washington, D.C. train, is coming off the Pensy's Buffalo Division trackage and will begin to pull out onto the New York Central's tracks. Sam Harrington was taken a little by surprise with the arrival of train 571 as it passed the tower because it's 23 minutes ahead of schedule. John actually wrote in his notes the early arrival time of 571 and how Sam had to call Tower 49 at Central Terminal to announce its early arrival. In the days when railroads were the primary way of getting from place to place, being on time was the required way of operating. Being early was even better. If a train arrived late or left a station late, that was severely frowned on and disciplinary action could be taken if a train ran very late. You need to keep in mind that the trains John Prophet recorded were daily operating trains on routes that were tried and true. There were very few surprises. The men who operated the interlocking tower always knew what train was expected and what time it was scheduled to pass their location. But if a public or employee timetable said a train was leaving Buffalo Central Terminal at 8.10 p.m., you bet your life that train was going to leave on time. Trains were so on time that a bit of folklore said that people who lived along or near a railroad track could set their watches based on the time the train ran through. They were that efficient. And if you depended on the train for business traveling, you didn't want to ride on a railroad that had a reputation for being late. John almost recorded the arrival of train 571 in its entirety. You'll hear K4 engine 5436 pull the train past tower 49A and slowly come to a stop about a quarter mile or so up the track. It's at this point that John stopped the recording. He started up again as soon as 5436 started backing the train down the New York Central tracks for the mile run to Central Terminal. Listen and you'll hear Sam Harrington call Tower 49 announcing that 571 is on the board and heading towards Central Terminal. In front of Tower 49A were the four tracks of the New York Central mainline. Tower 49A controlled all the movements that Pennsylvania trains had to make as it crossed over the tracks by navigating many complicated slip switches. This movement was not always quick and easy and you'll hear the K4 slip its driving wheels almost in front of the tower. But on this evening, the passengers are lucky. They arrived in Buffalo ahead of schedule.
With the arrival of Pennsylvania Train 571, the Pensy's Buffalo Division trackage was clear. Shortly after New York Central Train 5 pulled out of Central Terminal, Pennsylvania Train 574, the Dominion Express, left the terminal as well. Pulled by M1 engine 6889, the train will be heard backing down the central tracks and past 49A. What's unusual about this part of the recording is the high-pitched screech of what sounds like a caboose whistle. However, the more probable origin of this whistle is the M1 itself. Pennsylvania M1 steam engines were equipped with two styles of whistle since the M1 was used on both passenger and freight service. The higher pitch whistle was used when the engine was hauling a train of freight. In this recording, the whistle isn't giving any sort of signal. It's just sounding off to give a friendly hello to the crew in the tower. Eventually, train 574 will come to a stop and you'll hear engine 6889 waiting anxiously to get the signal to proceed forward. After a few seconds, 6889 will get the all clear and you'll hear the driving wheels begin to pull hard on the train as it moves off the central tracks and onto the Pennsylvania tracks directly in front of Tower 49A. As it slowly pulls away, you'll continue to hear the engine for quite some distance as the cars continue to pass in front of the tower. For some unknown reason, John abruptly stopped the recorder just as the sound of banging car couplers is heard in the recording. This is honestly out of character for him, as such a sound was something he enjoyed hearing in his recordings. Regardless, this complete sequence of a typical movement of a Pennsylvania train out of Central Terminal is really something special to listen to.
Based on both the New York Central and Pennsylvania timetables for 1951, I've been able to determine that John captured the movements of New York Central Train 5 and Pennsylvania Trains 571 and 574 in pretty close to real time. These movements began around 8 p.m. and continued for the next 15 to 20 minutes. In reviewing John's notes, one of the reasons John may have abruptly stopped recording the departure of Pensy Train 574 was because of what came down the tracks next. The K4S, number 5436, that was pulling train 571 minutes earlier. The engine was cut off the train at Central Terminal and was switched onto the main line so it could back down to Tower 49A, then proceed forward on the Buffalo Division and to the Pennsylvania's Ebenezer Engine Facilities. The engine had backed down the tracks and stopped within a few feet of Tower 49A, waiting patiently for a switch to move it onto the Pensy tracks. Once it gets the all clear, like the M1 before it, the K4 will pull hard and move forward, doing a lot of clanking in the process. Listen for the airplane to fly overhead at the tail end of this recording. It's at this point that we introduce a man by the name of Phil Morat to the story. Phil had been in the amusement park business since 1919. In 1947, he wanted to create a new amusement park in Indian Falls, New York, on 14 acres of land he owned on the banks of Tonawanda Creek. It was there that Phil built Morat's Amusement Park, or as it was more often called, Morat's Boulder Park. The first ride to open at the park was an elaborate carousel built by the Allen Herschel Company of North Tonawanda, New York. The carousel was actually designed by Emily Borgard, who just happened to be Phil Moritz's sister. After the carousel was completed, the Herschel Company said it was the best they had ever built. It was truly one of a kind, with 32 horses and 7 unique animals that included a giraffe, an elephant, 
a camel, a reindeer with real horns, a lion, tiger, and a polar bear. The horses had elongated heads adorned with plumes and jewels. They were very realistic, elaborately carved wooden animals. The carousel was originally located at a small amusement park in Alcott, New York until 1947. And there was a good reason why the carousel was located in Alcott. Phil ran the amusement park there, Rialto Park. In fact, when the Rialto closed in 1947, Phil transferred all the rides to his new Boulder Park. Boulder Park employed over a dozen workers, including Phil Moritz's children. It was truly a wonderful place to visit on a warm summer day to take in the excitement of the seven rides and ten concessions. One could enjoy a picnic or take in the hot dogs, ice cream, and pink cotton candy. Many Western New York businesses held their company picnics at Boulder Park. But for all the enjoyment and fun Boulder Park provided, it was missing something. While it did have a handful of very entertaining rides that kept folks busy for hours, especially if you went to the park for a picnic, the fact remained that merry-go-rounds, ferris wheels, and other things that spin around can get a little tiresome after a while. Something new and different from the other rides was needed. And would you believe, John Prophet and Sam Harrington would solve that problem. Based on the recordings John made at Tower 49A, we know that Sam was a towerman, a position he held for most of his life. Sam was also a brilliant engineer, and by that I don't mean the person who operates the engine in front of a train. Sam loved to design and build things. He was an excellent metal worker and had a full shop of tools for any sort of metal development and construction. He was also a mechanical genius. Always the dedicated railroad man, Sam loved building steam engines, small-scale engines that he could ride on. Both Sam and John were no strangers to Boulder Park. Sam had probably been there with his family dozens of times. Perhaps it was Sam who realized that the park needed something new and different. In the mid-1950s, after talking to Phil Morritt about his idea and getting the thumbs up, Sam Harrington started laying down a two-mile-long narrow-gauge railroad track that started at the park, went through the woods on the opposite side of Tonawanda Creek, and then returned to the park. This was no overnight task, but after the track laying had been completed, Sam put together the steam train to run on the track. The engine was a miniature version of the real thing, and for many kids who visited the park, this would be the first time they had ever laid eyes on a real steam engine. The engine was numbered 49, the same year that Sam had built it. It proved to be a massive hit with the crowds who came to Boulder Park. There were just as many adults who loved the train, often more so than the kids who were the intended riders. The engine's whistle could be heard loud and clear all over the park. Many folks who rode the train said that the sounds of the engine and the smell of the soft coal smoke from the engine's stack made them think about days gone by when steam engines were the norm. It was a win-win for both Phil Morritt and Sam. Phil got a new attraction to his park, and Sam got to enjoy his hobby on his days off. What could be better for a railroad enthusiast? Needless to say, the train was a huge success, and next to the carousel, it became a huge draw for Boulder Park. John told me that he had spent many days at the park running the steam train with Sam. 
Phil Morritt had been in the amusement park business for a long time, and he was slowing down a little by the early 1960s. Boulder Park didn't net him any money in the winter months either. As Phil got older, I'm told he grew a little more cantankerous. To put it into context, Phil really only had two rides that were a major draw to Boulder Park, the Carousel and Sam Harrington's Steam Train. There were other rides for sure, but anyone who visited the park paid more attention to the two biggest. And Phil soon realized that for the amount of crowds he had, there should be a bit more money in the till. He found out that ride tickets were being resold, so he hired a spotter to try to catch the person responsible. While not coming out and accusing Sam directly, Sam and Phil got into a nasty argument that dragged out for days. Ultimately, Phil ordered Sam off the property. The steam train was packed up and moved out of Boulder Park. Never one to admit he made a mistake by getting rid of one of the biggest attractions at his park, Phil replaced Sam's train with a modern equivalent, supposedly built by a friend of Walt Disney. Yes, that Walt Disney. But Sam wasn't about to take this lying down, so he reassembled his steam train directly across the road from Boulder Park, and he began competing with Phil for business, which, in many cases, he had no problem doing. Of course, losing business to a guy he had just fired and was now competing against didn't sit well with Phil. He decided to erect a high fence along Indian Falls Road in order to keep his customers in the park. Before the fence, folks would take in the rides at Boulder Park, head across the street to ride Sam's train, then go back to Boulder Park for whatever was left to do. Needless to say, Phil's monolithic fence did not go over well with neighbors and people driving by. The feud between the two men continued for a while until finally Phil was served with a notice to take down the fence, which he refused to do. It took the New York State Supreme Court to settle the matter, and Phil had to admit defeat and take the fence down. By 1963, Phil Morat was 73 years old, and he'd been in the amusement park business for most of his life. It was time to retire. In 1964, he sold the park, and sadly, the new owners ran it into the ground almost immediately. The park closed for good in 1970, and for many, a piece of their childhood disappeared as well. Sam Harrington's train wound up on display at the Manufacturer and Traders Trust Bank in Batavia, New York, and others. But if you head into Genesee County, New York, and stop at the intersection of Allegheny Road, Route 77, and Phelps Road, County Road 4, Look for the marker that's on the bridge crossing over Tonawanda Creek in the hamlet of Indian Falls. The marker reads, Moritz Boulder Amusement Park, 1949-1970, site of original Herschel merry-go-round designed by Emily Borgard and the home of Sam Harrington's miniature steam train.
It's getting later in the evening, and New York Central train number 246 just passed Tower 49A. John checked his watch and saw it was just going on 9.27 p.m. 246 was pulled by an Alco RS3 diesel engine, 8247, and had just come up from Bayview and was on its way to Syracuse and points beyond. At the tail end of this recording, you may have caught a faint conversation between Sam and John, but this was interrupted by Tom Dillon, who was also in the tower that night. You may remember Tom from earlier recordings at Tower 49A, where his booming voice and corny sense of humor made him the blunt of jokes among the other guys on the party line that ran between the interlocking towers and Central Terminal. Tom had either picked up the telephone or the intercom mic and yelled, Hello? Who's that? Hello? Well, at that point, John probably rolled his eyes at the rude interruption of his recording and promptly stopped the wire recorder. Almost as soon as train 46 passes 49A, the whistle of THB engine 502, a J1D Hudson, is heard signaling for Exchange Street as it pulled train 380 from the International Bridge at Black Rock to Central Terminal. And clear as day, you'll hear Sam Harrington call Tower 49 and announce the THB heading its way on track 2. The train is running a little late and arrived at Central Terminal around 9.30 p.m. The night wore on, and the New York Central Main Line right in front of Tower 49A, particularly Track 2, was going to see a lot of action in the next few minutes. Sam Harrington's shift on this warm October 21st evening is winding down, but not before he clears several more trains heading to Central Terminal. It's now almost 10 o'clock in the evening, and the next train is number 46, the Interstate Express, a daily that ran between Niagara Falls and New York. On this occasion, 46 is being pulled by two Alco diesel PA-type engines, number 4210 and 4211. Once again, Sam will call Tower 49 and say that 46 is on two. You'll be able to really hear the cars navigate the slip switches in front of the tower as it passes. And shortly after 46 passes by, listen for the faint whistle of an approaching train that comes to a stop way in the distance. This train is unidentified in John's notes because what he was trying to capture was another train heading toward the tower from the west. It's Michigan Central Train 344, pulled by J1D Hudson 5362. And you'll hear Sam call Tower 49A and announce the train by saying, 49, Michigan 344 on 2. The operator at Tower 49A acknowledges Sam's report and we're left to hear the train roar past the tower. The train is running a little late.
It's now 10.35 in the evening, and Sam Harrington's shift at Tower 49A is almost finished. Sam is on duty until he's scheduled to be relieved at 11 p.m., so he has a few more approaching trains to set the switches and signals for. The first is New York Central Train 284, the Pittsburgh Buffalo Express, pulled by J1D Hudson number 5362. The train has just come off the Central's tracks that crossed Exchange Street just past where Hamburg Street goes over the railroad tracks. This area is a little confusing because the tracks come from a southerly direction, but everyone referred to this as the Lines West, which it eventually becomes once the tracks reach Bayview, and then they start heading southwest. Lake Erie is kind of in the way of a truly westerly direction. While train 284 is approaching Tower 49A, a New York Central train pulled by a diesel will sneak by going in the opposite direction. After 284 passed Tower 49A, no further trains were handled by Sam Harrington that evening. It was a very busy shift for him, and for John as well. At 11 o'clock p.m., it was time to call it a night. As strange as this sounds, given the fact that John was pretty much a regular at Tower 49A, especially if Sam Harrington was working, these recordings made on the evening of October 21, 1951 would be the last John would make from Tower 49A. His first visit was on January 14, 1950. Why he never returned, or why he didn't record from the tower again, is anyone's guess. Given the enormous amount of material he captured at 49A, perhaps he got a little bored. Perhaps in 1952, more and more diesels were showing up on the New York Central, and John had no interest in recording them. Again, it's important to realize that John was making these recordings for his own enjoyment. In 1951, it never entered his mind that perhaps other people would want to hear these trains as they operated around the Buffalo area. This thought never occurred to him, possibly because he didn't think the railroad industry in Buffalo would start to disappear, much like the steam engine had. It was beginning in 1952 and through to 1954 that John started traveling further out from the western New York area to capture the last days of steam on other railroads. He visited many places in Pennsylvania to record the last days of Pensy steam. He traveled to Virginia to capture the end of Norfolk and Western steam. He even went to Cumberland, Maryland to record some of the last remaining Western Maryland steam engines. Of course, We'll feature many of these recordings in the future here on Living With Steam.
You've been listening to Living with Steam, featuring the sounds of trains and railroad operations in the Buffalo and Western New York area. This program was written and produced by me, Aaron Heverin, and all of the original sound recordings were made in the field by John Prophet from 1948 to 1955. For additional information, including photographs, maps, and other historical content relevant to each episode, please visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash livingwithsteam, all one word. While you're there, please take a moment to ask any questions you may have or even make comments about the show. I'd certainly appreciate your feedback. If you enjoy listening to Living With Steam, please rate the program on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.